0: Loving God, we pray that you would enable us to, to glimpse those deeper truths that in our busyness we often overlook. Not just to hear them, and even more than just understanding, may live them out to your glory and in your Son's name. Amen. Well, our series on Exploring God's mission plan continues as we continue to look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now I have to confess I have uh, spoken on Ephesians and read it on many occasions and each time I am struck by how rich and profound this letter is and especially when we come to this uh, passage in chapter 4, first 16 verses, um, they speak on the, what I will describe in a few moments as the engine room of the gospel the engine room of God's mission. And it is so large that uh, we're just going to sketch it out and just pause on a few items within it because, again, um, each phrase deserves um, a whole sermon and a series in its own right. The passage starts off, and we need to be reminded that Paul was literally a prisoner at this time. Uh, Exactly where it was, there's a number of options. It could have been in... uh, Caesarea, it could have been in, uh, in Rome um, or a few other occasions which we do know Paul was imprisoned. So he was literally in prison as he wrote this letter. But he also uses it in the sense that his truer commitment, his allegiance, his loyalty is to the Lord. So he's now moving from a mode of not so much teaching but more of encouragement, of uh, exhortation those who did the Handling the Bible course on uh, Thursday night or Friday morning. This is what's called deliberative rhetoric. Paul is assuming agreement, and he's saying, now, because we know this, what does it mean for how we live? And that's precisely where he takes this. He says, I beg you to live a life worthy of your calling for which you have been called by God. The word for worthy, axios, Is a lovely word. It actually is the word for scales. To be worthy is to be corresponding in weight or value. So if you think of it in terms of a pair of scales, it's actually having these two elements in balance. So Paul says that to live a life that is worthy is to balance the calling that we have received and that we have uh, named for us at our baptism with the way in which we go about life. And i found, once I discovered that just the word axios meant this balancing of the two, I found it so helpful. So what does this look like? Well, Paul is now going to um, go beneath the, the hood, under the hood. Now, I did do a Google search last night to see if I could find any females taking a great interest in going under the hood, and I have to say that... Um, Google was not particularly helpful and quite sexist because most of the females looking under the hood had a look of confusion. Um, And I know that there are some seriously good female mechanics, but it has to be said. um, When I was doing youth work, you know, one or two years ago when I was fresh out of college, um, half my youth work was literally taking my engine apart and putting it back together again because so many of the young lads just love to be there and see an engine taking it apart and putting it back together again. I did think about trying to claim it on my tax return as my, my work pass. but uh, There were a few photos I could have used, but it might have been a little bit too pointed, that the age of the number of males looking under the hood was getting older and older and older. And I had three 90-year-olds looking under the hood of a car as well. But anyway, I've gone with this one. And so in this passage, it's like lifting the hood on the engine of... God's mission plan. What do we see? Now, there's a number of things that I want to um, just draw attention to, but this is the, the main one. And if I can push the, uh, the analogy just a little bit further, these two themes of humility and of gentleness and of being patient and bearing with one another in love are like the oil for the engine. <laughs> It's actually what makes for the smooth operation of the various different moving parts. And I'm going to come back and finish with the importance of humility and gentleness in particular. So let's move on. The first thing Paul noticed is the power of one. Now, there's nothing new or original about this. Any uh, coach trying to encourage a team, they'll say, look, you've got to work together as one. You've got to work as a team. You've got to pull together. And in the ancient world, there were um, speeches that were made around cities that if you want to advance as a city in comparison to another city, you've got to be united. You've got to be as one. And you've got to have a single-minded purpose. So Paul was actually naming something here that is... Uh, both obvious, but also it's where this oneness come from. Because Paul says this oneness of purpose, this oneness of mind, is not something that we have to create ourselves. It is given to us. And boy, does he lay it on. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope from your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That's a whole heap of oneness that we have received. Yet, as a church, we still manage to be divided. We do need to work and recognize that this isn't an optional extra. Where the people of God gather together, united, we are so much more powerful because the grace of God can then flow through us. So Paul then talks about how each one of us has been given, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Notice the phrase, each one of us. It isn't just an elite view; it isn't just for particular, but we have different gifts, we have different areas of grace that are brought to us. But each one of us becomes a means of grace. It's a phrase that uh, was used in the prayer of thanksgiving in the Book of Common Prayer, that we might be the means of grace. The Bible is a means of grace. The ministry of the church a means of grace. The reason we gather face to face as the people of God is that we might experience and offer the means of grace to each other. It's not something It's just a private exchange between us and god god seeks to do so there's a story it's more of a personal one but it stays in our mind and uh, i'm sure you'll take it in the good grace that i offer it to you when we left st matthew's last time after 13 years we had our farewells in 2008 and we were uh, very much encouraged and appreciated the farewells but uh, so many times we had people come up to us after that period and saying we'll miss you in fiona we will really miss John. And we know, for those of you who know John, that he's a means of grace. He just brings a measure of God's goodness and touches lives. And we've heard that time and time again. Each one of us, every one of us, without exception, is being and can be used by God as a means of grace, of touching other people's lives. And we may not even be aware of it. But that is how the mission of God proceeds. Now we come to a passage which is a little bit obscure to understand. And I'm not going to go into the technical details of how it's actually a Syriac version of a text in the Old Testament that has come through in this way. I'm going to go to a much more accessible way of explaining it by using Eugene Peterson's The Message. Some of you might know it's a paraphrase. And here he explains that Paul uses a passage, it actually is a fairly obscure one, that talks about someone who has won a victory, a king has won a victory, and as a result of that is now dispersing the goods that come, the spoils of victory if you like. He hands out the gifts to the people and he uses it to describe But Jesus, who's he talking about? Well, He then says, Jesus is the one who came down, entered the world. He had the battle upon the cross. He's victorious from the cross. He's now ascended. And in that role, the ascended Jesus is handing out gifts to his people. That's the image that Paul was using there. So, the gifts that he has given of the ascended king, he gave. And this is a fairly familiar uh, list, and I'm not going to go through them in all detail. He gave apostles. Now, the word apostle is both a specific word and a general word. The specific nature is that those who were, uh, had encountered Jesus, who had been eyewitnesses of his earthly ministry, had heard his teaching, or like in the case of Paul, had engaged with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, they had a particular ministry and role to bridge the ascension of Jesus with the church that was to follow. And what they named from what they recalled of the teaching of Jesus and through the work of the Spirit, they named what we now describe as the apostolic faith. Our understanding of Jesus and why he is so significant, what God was doing in Christ, came to us from a generation of those who God appointed and set apart to give us this apostolic gospel tradition it's what we summarize when we use the words of the apostles creed and the Nicene creed so that is a deposit that a particular ministry linked us to this person of jesus who did not leave us any writing of his own but the word apostle with a if you like a small a can also be used of anyone who is sent out apostello simply means someone who has been sent And it can be just as validly used in this verse, not only of the apostolic gospel that we have received and we affirm as being one holy, Catholic, and apostolic Church of Christ, but also the fact that in the the mission of God, missionaries are sent out. They are apostles in the sense of being a missionary, of being pioneers, of going out and creating and developing the whole outward spread of the mission movement. So God gave the apostles, he gave prophets. Now, prophets, again, is a ministry that perhaps we've overlooked. Actually, I'm sure we have overlooked in the church. Isn't those who are like John the Baptist and have a very uh, striking presence in the community. It's more people who God speaks through, speaks into a moment at a time for a particular people those who have a sense of, I believe God is saying something to us now and have an ability to name that. And in the New Testament, we are asked to weigh it, say, is that consistent with what we know with with the apostolic truth and things? Because not all people who think they have uh, a message from God actually do have it. They might be misguided. It might be their own thoughts or agendas. Very often is the case. But God does speak through all his people, through those who have a gift of prophecy, just to say that this is what I believe God is urging us to do, an opportunity, a choice to be made, perhaps a warning to heed. That is the voice of a prophet. And it's different from teachers, though there's some overlap as well. So God gave gifts of apostles and prophets, of evangelists, those who have a real gift of being able to explain and engage the truth the good news about jesus to a wider community and there are some who have particular gifts of that and it's a mistake sometimes to think well all we've got to do is imitate billy graham and we'll become that well billy graham was a one-off he was gifted And there are many others who have those particular gifts. I've come across some people who within 20 seconds can slip into a conversation some profound gospel truth. But that was their particular gift. But here's the thing. Those evangelists are only really effective when they work in the context of the body of Christ. When there is a community of God's people who have been building relationships and showing what this truth looks like in action and who have taken time to to hear people's stories and to sit with them and being there when needed. And that is where the work of the the evangelist comes in and can be so much more fruitful. So these days we talk more about what is known as process evangelism, less a one-off event, you've got to come and listen to this person, but much more about we just seek to live this out ourselves. Later in the year I'm hoping to reintroduce Alpha, Um, within the life of our church and to start with we'll listen to it ourselves and think how do these truths speak to us is it meaningful does it make sense of how we experience life and it's as we do that as a community then those that we pray are raised to have the gift of the evangelists and then finally we have the combination of pastors and teachers and the two actually go together Um, A pastor is only as effective as they're actually able to bring God's wisdom to bear on whatever the context and the concern may be. It's the word for a shepherd, actually, that they're able to guide and to lead. And teachers are only as effective as they know those who are in front of them, know the realities of life and can make the connections between the two. So Paul combines the two. So the gifts have been given, and these are very big-picture gifts of public ministries of the church since the time of Christ. God has been calling people, men and women, into these roles. In the New Testament, even Junia, a female, is named as one of the apostles. Just saying. Why? It is so for the equipping of the saints. That's all of us. All those who are baptised into Christ, who have been called apart, which is what the word means, are the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The life of discipleship is never a static one. There is always more to learn and to, to live out and to grapple with. The sign of good education, if you like, is that for every question we might begin to give a clearer view of how we might address it. Another five questions emerge, and that is where the learning process continues. Let us not lose our appetite to learn more, not just out of interest, but that we might be mature, increasingly mature, until the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then Paul continues, once we enter into that space, and the we is obviously a plural one, we together, then we as God's people, we as church communities, will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. That was very true in the marketplace of the first century. So many different voices claiming their attention and coming up with views of listen to me, listen to me and the competition for that. And if anything in the 21st century, not just with uh, the radio airwaves and shock jocks and all the others of an opinion on anything and everything, but now even more so by social media and other ways, these views are amplified all around us. How can we find solid ground in this space, the, the anchor points? It is when we put down those deep roots, the image that we had last week, the deep roots grounded in the wisdom and the love of God. So Paul was continuing. So a summary for this might be, we need to grow up and continue that process of growing. And sometimes that involves pruning. Pruning. Sometimes it involves uh, attending to the soil, attending to what, the, what is uh, feeding our minds. All these things go into the mix. And then we come to a verse that I have to confess, I, I have a love-hate relationship with this verse. Speaking the truth in love. When someone approaches and starts a conversation with saying, look, I really do need to speak the truth in love here. Part of me cringes because I've heard so many hurtful and damaging things said on the justification. And I'm just speaking the truth in love. Now we do need to speak the truth in love. I'm actually going to come back and revisit that word "speaking" in a minute. But this is not an excuse to just be blunt and to be candid and to you know clip people around the ears verbally. If we can get them. This is a quote I came across, someone I hadn't heard, but he's an American writer and activist. He said, My goal is to speak the truth in love. I'm sure it's all our goals to speak the truth in love. There are a lot of people speaking the truth with no love. And there are a lot of people speaking about love without much truth. Isn't that true? Our goal was actually genuinely to build the relationships, to have a genuine concern and love and support for people in all our messiness. I know I will hear those hard words from people who I know genuinely love me, differently from those I think who are just waiting for an excuse to tell me why I've got it wrong yet again. I suspect in the culture of our church, we need to reclaim more of this space. And if anything tilting the balance back towards the love side of the equation. But I actually was intrigued by it. So I went back and explored this phrase, speaking the truth in love, and I discovered that the word speaking is actually not there in the verse. I looked at it in the Greek and said, am I missing something? is a a verb, missing. Um, But rather the phrase is used, being truthful through the instrument of love, in and through love. We could even paraphrase this verse as living truthfully in and through love. And that gave me a broader sense of how Paul was seeking to exhort that, yes, this truth that we hold is so important, but we must live it ourselves if it is to be heard by others. I do wonder, in the midst of the the culture wars that the church has got embroiled in over not just the last uh, decade or so, but the last 30 or 40 decades, that we've focused so strongly on strident voices that many people perceive, well, why would we come to the church if they just seemed so judgmental, so quick to tell us where we've got it wrong, rather than hearing a message that is actually conveying love and nurture and care and concern and God's grace. So drawing these threads together, we, group, we speak, we live, we demonstrate this truth in love. We are to grow up. This is how we grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. Now, I had a cartoon many, many years ago that I just love so much. It's a picture of a body made up of a whole series of little bodies. And you can picture yourself in that little, where you are in the body that is growing. In fact, it's even bigger than that. It's a whole body of Christ made up of all the different parts. And the thing is that to be effective functioning of the body, all those little bodies seeking to get on with each other don't always get on together with each other. We have differences, different personalities, different agendas, different experiences, different cultures, different tastes as we come together. So how can we be effective in that space? And this is where I come back to those two words. Being completely humble and gentle. To be humble is not just don't get a big head and think too much of yourself. Certainly true in Australian culture, we have a bit of a uh, cultural characteristic. We cut down the poor toppies. We don't like anyone getting too big for themselves. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. To be humble in the ancient world and Paul's day was to be humiliated. It was to be brought down and to be viewed of a very low status, of being regarded as a nobody. Why did Paul think it's so important? Because that is precisely how Jesus was treated and the pathway that Jesus chose to do so. God's power was seen in that weakness of Jesus or that perceived weakness of Jesus. In that vulnerable space that Jesus entered... God's power won victories that no army could hope to achieve. And the word gentle here, it's actually, I'm sad that they actually use the word gentle, not because I don't like the word gentle, I love the word gentle, just in the Greek it's another word. This is the word meek, which is almost dropped out of our vocabulary. To be meek is not to be weak, it's not to be a doormat, it's not to be hiding and tucked up in a corner somewhere, The word meek was used in Paul's day of a strong military stallion, of a horse with power and strength that is disciplined and under control. To be meek is to be the opposite of a tyrant, of having power and lashing out in all directions and claiming it's all about uh, everything's about them. You combine those two together and you get the qualities and you realise that life is actually not all about me. I'm not the most important person in my world. And when we begin to set that aside and think we don't need to make a name for ourselves, we don't need to impress anyone, that has all come to us from God. We can put other people first and make way. And that's when we begin to find the the power of yielding to others. I had a little uh, confusion when I got to Canada and driving in Canada. I thought the road rules were more or less the same, just the other side of the road. I couldn't work out when I was going through intersections that people were looking at me very crankily. I discovered that the rules for giving way in Canada intersections were different. We think when you give way, one side has the right of way and the other have to give way. Canada, no. They actually have give way signs on all four intersections. And Apparently, I discovered after a week of driving and trying to work out what was going on, it's first in, first served. So the first who comes to an intersection is the first to have the right of way, then the next and the next. They could have told me that at the airport or somewhere where I actually picked up the car. But that actually becomes a beautiful image of the Christian life. Our willingness to give way, to yield and put others first and to be in that space. That is when this body of Christ suddenly gets into a healthy, revitalised space. And that is where our prayer is for St Matthews and what we can offer in terms of our ministry. We continue to grow together. We continue to see how God is at work in and through every one of us. The grace of God is through each one of us. And when we recognise that and place ourselves under those ministries, then we will be much the healthier for it. But even more importantly, the mission of God will progress much more effectively. Amén.